On Friday night, Gaza went silent. We are in the middle of uh, the Gaza city. Uh, we suddenly uh, lost connection of everything, the internet and everything. And we were not able to talk to anyone in different parts across the Gaza Strip. It was a near-total communications blackout. A Palestinian journalist named Hind Kodari caught the terrifying moment on tape. I don't know where my family is. I don't know what's happening. It's also very sad that we don't hear any ambulances, and this may mean that the ambulances are not being able to mobilize and to move and transport. Then, on Saturday night, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to his country in a televised address. Soldiers had entered the gates of Gaza, he said, beginning the second phase of Israel's war with Hamas. So, you know, in recent days, weeks, they had had a few sort of raids. They went in, they came out. Um, And everyone was asking themselves, when does the ground incursion begin? Uh, And what we seem to be seeing instead is that it's a gradual expansion of its ground assaults, ground operations. But, you know, slowly, slowly, they seem to be moving um, and bringing more forces into parts of that territory. That's Miriam Berger. She covers the Middle East for The Post and spoke to us from Tel Aviv. On Sunday, after roughly 40 hours, some communication was restored to Gaza. But information is still scarce. It's, it's hard to figure out exactly what's actually going on in terms of the fighting right now. Uh, you know, Israel won't comment about its forces in the field. Today, what we know is that there seem to have been uh, Israeli tanks on Salah Hadin Street, uh, sort of on the outskirts of Gaza City. That appears to be the biggest yet, sort of the farthest yet that Israeli forces have gone in. Uh, Hamas also said that it engaged and, uh, you know, fought the soldiers. You know, we don't know really the specifics about any of these elements. More than 8,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the war began. That includes more than 3,000 children, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health. And on top of that as well, we have more than 20,000 people who have been injured. Hospitals are displaced persons camps, barely functioning, roads are unusable. Uh, Just all of the sort of infrastructure of everyday life, which was already very, very under strain in Gaza, is now just worse and worse and worse, Uh, you know, every moment, it seems. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Monday, October 30th. I'm your guest host, Abha Patrai. Today... Israel's ground assault in Gaza, and what it tells us about the future direction of the war. So Miriam, tell us more about the ground assault that began over the weekend. What do we know about Israel's activities in Gaza so far, and what does that tell us about their approach to this new phase of the conflict? So initially, Israel launched an air war on Gaza. Israel says that it was targeting uh, Hamas uh, military infrastructure uh, and militants. Gazans uh, will say that, you know, thousands and thousands of civilians have been killed. 
So what we know of today, at least, is that Israel has continued to expand uh, its activities. Um, you know, Daniel Hagari, who's a spokesperson for the uh, Israeli military, you know, today said that there are infantry, engineering corps, armored tanks, artillery corps, uh, and additional forces entering now. This is the most that we've seen so far. So Israeli forces, um, you know, according to what the military has said, they are targeting um, Hamas tunnels, infrastructure, uh, as well as, you know, continuing to find body parts uh, and dead bodies of those who were taken hostage. There's a feeling for Gaza civilians that everywhere they go, they could be hit, um, you know, struck by Israeli artillery or by a missile or bomb. And the Israeli uh, army has since um, basically the few days into the war been telling Gazans to move south, uh, south of Gaza Valley. Uh, so that would mean, you know, evacuating the north in Gaza City. And so uh, many Gazans that we've talked to, though, first of all, say that they can't move south because they just, you know, can't physically, they're, you know, hospitalized or they can't afford fuel for their car. They have no way to go. Other And many at the same time are also really, really scared to move around because of the continuing bombardments um, that are still happening in, um, you know, from north to south. And uh, until this weekend, when there was a real increase in the intensity of the attacks on the north, uh, according to the Gaza Ministry of Health, the uh, majority of people who were dying, uh, you know, in last week, for example, were those who were in the South, many who had been displaced from the North. Over the past few weeks, since October 7th, we've seen Israel conduct an intense bombing campaign in Gaza that's killed thousands of people. And Israel's also called up hundreds of thousands of reservists. They've amassed troops at the border of Gaza. And yet this expanded ground assault by Israeli troops seems to have been pretty slow to come. What was the timing of this offensive? Was it a surprise? And why did it happen now? So, you know, in the first few days of the war, there was a real feeling that the, um, you know, what we expected to be a sort of major ground incursion was going to happen imminently. Uh, you know, on the Israeli side, people were so, so angry at the death toll. Uh, and there was a real motivation for, you know, going in. And for various reasons, we've seen this sort of slow down. Uh, one of them appears to be pressure from the U.S., um, who was also worried about you know, the ground assault then uh, leading to retaliatory strikes on its own forces around the Middle East. Uh, domestically within Israel, there was a lot of uh, sort of a divide amongst the families of the hostages. Some of the families have, you know, said, don't go in yet. You know, we're going to, we need to have a prisoner exchange. We need to do anything we can to have our uh, loved ones come home. Other ones support the ground uh, operation, even though that, you know, the, uh, increases the chance that something can happen um, to their loved ones. Also, within the Arab world, I mean, in recent years, we've seen much closer ties growing between Israel uh, and other country, Arab countries in the region. Uh, and just the scale of the number of people being killed, the videos that you see coming out, uh, just the sort of horrors that people have experienced in Gaza, really wild publics across the Arab world. Uh, and that also, you know, has had a sort of impact on how, um, you know, these calls for at least some sort of um, humanitarian pause, ceasefire, none of this has actually come to fruition yet, unfortunately. But there are sort of increasing calls for that, or at least a sort of what it seems we're having now is a somewhat sort of slower unrolling of what this next phase of the war is, as Israel calls it. Miriam, let's talk more about the blackout that hit Gaza on Friday. You mentioned there was no cell service, no internet, and very limited service returned early Sunday. What do we know about what caused this blackout? 
So according to a senior U.S. official, uh, Israel turned off the internet uh, and uh, Washington pressured for them to turn it back on. Uh, Israel controls uh, all telecommunication systems um, you know, in Gaza Strip in the West Bank. But even before Friday when it was shut off, phone calls, internet connections were extremely patchy, limited, sort of unreliable because of damage to you know, various networks and um, infrastructure over these last three weeks in bombardments. And then when communication, you know, returned again, uh, people were just really frantically trying to figure out, you know, who died and who survived, who was hit, you know, what happened to, you know, everyone that they cared about because before at least you could call them. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about how this impacted people on the ground in Gaza. The impact was extremely severe. Ambulances couldn't be called. You know, we talked to one ambulance driver who said that they you know, basically we're like stationing people on high points to be able to sort of sense where the bombs had had hit to try and figure out where they needed to send the drivers. And, you know, ambulances are already really low on gas. Most people don't really have fuel for their cars. So, you know, civilians bringing the injured to the hospitals is already like really difficult um, for so many people. Uh, and there was just a lot of just, you know, chaos and fear for people, you know, and, and especially uh, not knowing what was going to happen, you know, with um, in terms of what Israel's plans were with the, uh, you know, ongoing, ongoing ground operations. Palestinians in Gaza feel extremely abandoned uh, and extremely frustrated and angry um, that, you know, they see the West and specifically America have really just, you know, sided with Israel wholeheartedly here. Uh, they feel betrayed by uh, Arab countries, uh, by, you know, international institutions. And, uh, you know, amongst Israelis, um, there's a uh, feeling that there's, on the one hand, do, you know, there is support from the United States, from other um, European allies. Uh, but there's also a sense among some that sort of like they're being told to restrain themselves and, and they're like, well, we got to do this. This is our fight for survival. After the break how that fight for survival might unfold. We'll be right back. Miriam, let's look ahead a bit. Netanyahu has now warned Israelis to prepare for what he's describing as a long and difficult war. What might that look like? So the next stage of this war, you know, could just be really so painful uh, for so many people. Um, Gaza is not an easy place for Israelis to fight in. Uh, you know, it's been uh, controlled by Hamas since 2007. You know, the Israelis don't know the territory at this point very well. Uh, Hamas has built a whole network of tunnels um, underneath various parts of the territory. The chances of sort of very bloody urban warfare breaking out in, you know, with expanded ground operations is quite high. Uh, and Gazans, you know, after having, uh, you know, endured weeks of, of bombardments, you know, have very few places to hide at this point as well. One Hamas spokesperson uh, in Beirut told uh, a colleague that, you know, they have stores of fuel and food uh, for months under or in ground and are prepared for a long fight. On the Israeli side, they're gearing up for that too. You know, they have a civilian, you know, an army that uh, has conscripts, you know, every year. And so you have so many people who are in the reserves uh, and they've all been called up. So both sides appear uh, militarily to be gearing towards a long fight. Uh, when it comes to for civilians, specifically, you know, Palestinians in Gaza, there's uh, a long fight can, you know, really, really be very, very uh, painful uh, and, and deadly. 
Let's talk a bit more about the threat of a regional conflict. Who could possibly intervene and what impact would that have on the war? Yeah, right now you look at the map and you're just like, oh my gosh. So Israel's sort of southern front is with Gaza. Uh, You also have um, rising violence uh, in the occupied West Bank. Uh, More than 100 Palestinians um, have been killed by Israeli uh, soldiers and, uh, and settlers since October 7th. And there's this Right up north with escalating tensions with Hezbollah. So uh, Hezbollah is, um, you know, a militia that's um, backed by Iran in Lebanon. Uh, Israel and um, and Hezbollah have fought wars before. Um, there's, you know, a long history of tensions between Israel and Lebanon. Fears are rising that if ground operations uh, intensify in Gaza, then Hezbollah might respond up north. Uh, and, you know, uh, along with Hezbollah, Hamas is also... Uh, you know, historically backed by Iran, uh, which is sort of uh, Israel's larger regional foe. Uh, And there's threats from, you know, Iran-backed militias um, across the Middle East against U.S. forces. So there's really just sort of all these various fronts in which it's all, um, you know, kind of dominoing into uh, just what feels like uh, a momentum towards a lot more violence um, when, you know, there are calls for de-escalation, but so far those have not um, been heeded in any sort of substantial way. Last week, we spoke to a man from Jerusalem whose wife, daughter, and other members of their extended family are among the roughly 230 people taken hostage by Hamas. How does this new phase of the war complicate efforts to secure their release? So we're not quite sure. On the Israeli side, there's a lot of skepticism about any Hamas offers when it comes to saying, you know, we'll release the hostages or release the women and children if you release our prisoners, Palestinian prisoners uh, held in Israeli prison. Um, you know, there's, there isn't really a, um, a basis of trust on that end, we'll say. And so it's it's really unclear right now in terms of what options there are uh, for the prisoner releases, uh, but it's very, very emotional here. Uh, and among some um, Israelis and some families of hostages, uh, there's a real, real anger at Netanyahu and, um, you know, his allies uh, and this sort of feeling like they're going to go in and they're going to destroy, you know, their stated goal of destroy Hamas and the second goal of bringing the hostages home is sort of like, you know, second tier for that. Uh, And, you know, the sort of gung-ho about we need to go to war has really frightened a lot, you know, some of these hostages of the families. Um, Others say, you know, like, we got to do what we got to do to, you know, uh, from their perspective, you know, be able to live in peace and security. So we don't know what this will mean yet. Miriam, zooming out, how are you thinking about the long-term consequences of this war and how all of this might play out? And tell us a bit, what does this mean for the possibility of a two-state solution? Is that even possible now? So I think alongside this period, really just um, sort of underscoring um, how unfeasible a two-state solution is, despite that it sort of remains the policy of the United States and uh, you know other Western allies, is also uh, you know for the Israelis that the security paradigm that they've had, uh, you know, in recent years developed over about the last three decades also isn't working. This idea that sort of you would have Palestinians, um, you know, living under occupation in um, Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, um, East Jerusalem, uh, and that the way that they sort of had it configured would be that they could remain secure and safe. Um, And that has clearly sort of broken out and broken uh, and, you know, proved untrue. 
And it's an extremely painful time, I think, for uh, you know so many different communities trying to understand uh, where to go from here uh, and really feeling, again, like so under threat um, and so sort of existentially uh, threatened. Uh, and that's a really, really scary place for so many people here to be. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Miriam Berger covers foreign affairs for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnik and Emma Talkoff, with help from Trinity Webster Bass. It was edited by Robin Amer and mixed by Sean Carter. Special thanks to Aaron Cunningham and Jesse messner Haig. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. I'm your guest host, Abba Vajrai. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.